Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. And today we're starting a new feature. We'll talk about the Medical Bill of the Month, a project Kaiser Health News is doing with NPR. We're taping in our regular Thursday time slot this week at 1030 on March 29th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Sarah Cliff of Vox.com. Hello. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi there. And Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. Well, welcome to spring break, ladies, even though it is hardly spring yet here in D.C. Congress is out this week, but there is still plenty of news. Let's start with the breaking type of news. Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin was let go last night to be replaced by President Trump's personal physician, Navy Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson. Now, this would normally be just another staff shakeup for the president. Shulkin was embroiled in some controversy about the use of government funds for his wife on a trip to Europe for a meeting, although, frankly, none of the things he was accused of appear as egregious as some of the expenses we've seen from other cabinet secretaries who still have their jobs. What's interesting here, though, and how it relates to us, is that Shulkin took to the New York Times editorial page today and to NPR this morning to suggest that his firing was politically motivated by those who want to privatize more of the VA health system. Here's a quote from Shulkin. They saw me as an obstacle to privatization who had to be removed. That because I am convinced that privatization is a political issue aimed at rewarding select people and companies with profits, even if it undermines care for veterans. So what does this mean for the future of VA health care, which has been quite the controversy going back several administrations now? It sounds like we're going to see a strong push for the privatization, obviously, um, that he has sort of maybe been holding back a little bit. Um, I think what's unclear. He, President Trump? Um, I'm sorry. He, David Shulkin, oh. um, has, you know, he's, he's, it's been privatizing, but not as much maybe as Trump wanted to. Um, and so I think what what's unclear, at least to me, um, is how ready they are to do that, how fast that will happen. We should probably step back and point out that the VA is the, you know, when people talk about single payer and national health insurance, the VA is the the one example that we have in the United States of, of a health system where both the facilities and the people who work there are paid by the government. It actually is government-run health care. And there have been arguments about privatizing parts of it or at least making, you know, more care available to veterans for, God, a couple of decades now because they're, you know, with the you know, however many years of war we've now had, um, lots more veterans with lots more problems who qualify for VA health benefits and are, have long waiting lists to get them, which was obviously the big scandal in the Obama administration. So so we've seen, I mean, Congress has gone along with some efforts to do some privatization. I guess the, the question is how much and how fast. I thought it was interesting that Shulkin portrayed himself in, in his op-ed as, you know, standing strong in the breach against privatization. And that's why he was pushed out um, because he also oversaw the passage of this law that made it a lot easier to fire federal workers within the VA that was passed through Congress and has been really seen as a model that a lot of people in the Trump administration want to see replicated across other agencies. And it was passed and it was supposed to be a way to oust high level officials who oversaw some of these scandals at the VA that led to long wait times and people actually dying for lack of care. But how it's actually 
been used on the ground is to clean a house with a lot of rank-and-file people who um, had ex- minor to, to no wrongdoing on, on their record. And so I, I think it's interesting um, that he oversaw that sort of erosion of fe- uh, protections for federal workers that has been sort of seen as a template, and, and now he's sort of... Um, crusading in the in the opposite direction or uh, in a different way. Nobody's been able to kind of fix the VA. You know, not, it's it's not been so much a Democratic or Republican issue as, as much as it's been sort of a punching bag for who's ever on the other side. But, you know, there's been so much effort and it seems not all that much to show for it. Yeah. I also, you know, picking up on your point, Julia, about how it's kind of our little homegrown national health care system is that you see a lot of the debates around the VA that you see around the National Health Service in, in England, things about wait times and access to drugs. The VA generally does have lower prices than other parts of the American healthcare system, but it also has a pretty restricted drug formulary. There's obviously the issues with wait time that came up during the Obama administration in a very serious way. I think there's you know a big question like Anna raised of what does privatization look like. I think one of the trends we've seen, um, you know, elsewhere in the health case, healthcare space is more private companies and Medicaid, essentially states turning their Medicaid programs over to private companies and saying, we'll pay you a per person fee to run this because we think you can do better than we can. And, you know, in some cases you see inefficiencies. In some cases, there might just be some administrative bloat. I think it was actually Kaiser Health News had a great story about um, some companies in California that were getting quite rich off of Medicaid privatization. So I think there, there is certainly reason. And obviously, we've seen all these private prisons and the, the issues mm-hmm. with those. Yeah. So there's reason for, for concern, for some of the concerns that, you know, I guess former Secretary Shulkin is expressing. I mean, one of the things that's just been surprising about this is this is not typically the way a cabinet secretary exits an administration. <laughs> so we well, had, it seems to be more typical in this administration. In this, so we had, you know, uh, former Secretary Shulkin on um, you know, national radio and NPR writing an op-ed in the New York Times. Um, he clearly has some very strong opinions about this. And, and he clearly knew he was on his way out. Clearly yeah. he he was able to write this. To go. Yeah, so yeah just, I'm guessing he didn't write it last night. No. And he's reputation minding as well. I mean, you know, we're, there, there's a lot going on, um, obviously, to Alice's point um, about some of the changes he was for. And then, you know, e- even if it wasn't as egregious as others, he did sort of possibly, there was a, an appearance of misusing, you know, government funding um, and taking gifts and, and things like that. So, you know, certainly he's. Uh, I believe there were Wimbledon tickets Wimbledon involved. Tickets. Yes, yes. I mean, there's also the question of of his uh, presumed replacement. And yes, that was my next question. His, his fitness for the job, President Trump seems to have uh, chosen him for how well they get along and for how good looking he is and how how good he is on TV. I mean, that's yes. that that is that is not insignificant in, in President Trump's press briefing was dedicated to the topic of how robust and healthy Trump is. <laughs> so that definitely put him in. And our, our podcast mate, Joanne Cannon, pointed out on Twitter this morning that this is someone who is actually 
uh, never practiced medicine except in a government-run system. He's not in no, it's he's not in the VA. He's in the military medical system, and those are separate and parallel, which a lot of people still don't get. But um, it's he's never obviously run any kind of a big organization. The VA is a really big organization. I'll be interested to see what the veterans groups who have you know a, a, a lot of sway, if not a lot of say, in who runs the VA um, have to say about this choice and and what you know, the Senate who would have to confirm him will think about this. It's definitely kind of out of the box. <laughs> right. Because I remember even earlier in the Trump administration when they were t- their names being floated, I think it was a Toby Cosgrove was kind of who runs the Cleveland, the Cleveland, Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. Um, I'm debating between that and Mayo. Um, stepping down yeah, from the Cleveland Stepping Clinic, down. Yeah. Would he run? The, and that, that feels like a more natural choice, right? He's run, at least he's run a huge he's organization. He's run a huge healthcare, a well-regarded healthcare organization at that one that, you know, um, is well known for its excellent care. So this seems, I mean, in a, Toby Cosgrove felt like a more natural choice you'd see in a more predictable administration. But um, a doctor who looks good on TV, I guess, is the more predictable choice in the <laughs> Trump administration. Well, there definitely more to come on this one. Um, we have health news from the states also this week, since Congress isn't here. Um, first up, I want to talk about Iowa, not to be confused with Idaho, which we've talked about for the past month or so. Idaho wanted to let companies offer health insurance that deliberately flouted the rules of the Affordable Care Act. HHS eventually told Idaho no. Now Iowa has passed a bill that the governor is about to sign that would allow similar plans to be sold, except they won't be called insurance, so they won't be regulated by the state insurance department. Will that get around the ACA problem, too? I think it might. So the Iowa bill is pretty similar to some pre-existing legislation in Tennessee that I've covered, where essentially it's a carve-out for something called Farm Bureau plans, health insurance um, offered by, well, not health insurance, um, a plan that covers medical services, <laughs> but is not technically health insurance offered by something called a Farm Bureau that historically has served the more you know, rural population, but is open to everybody. It was everybody. basically a way for self-employed farmers to get into group coverage. I mean, that was the origin exactly. of this. So that was the origin of this. In Tennessee, you know, they didn't really do this as a workaround around the Affordable Care Act. They just had some state-level regulations that exempted these plans from um, from the ACA requirements, said they weren't actually health insurance. So what could, Iowa is doing. What Iowa is doing so you could, you know, deny people with pre-existing conditions, leave out certain types of coverage. Tennessee kind of did this for a few years. They did not have an especially strong Obamacare market, you know, pretty low competition. There was a time last year where nobody wanted to sell in the Knoxville metro area. And experts who study this think that at least some of this is due to the fact that the healthier population is getting segmented off into these Farm Bureau plans. and Which are cheaper because they offer less. Exactly. That being said, you know, the, the market didn't collapse. There was still a market in Tennessee. People were able to get coverage. The premiums were pretty significant. But in Iowa, you know, you're doing this at the same time that the individual mandate is, is um, going to be repealed. So it's pretty unpredictable what will happen there. But it seems like... The precedent from Tennessee suggests a state can do this in a way they couldn't do what Idaho wanted to do. Although Iowa also almost didn't have plans last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was. I mean, for this year, it was. I remember it was kind of touch and go um, about the Bear Bear, Bear mm-hmm. County. Yeah, there were Bear mm-hmm. counties in Iowa, so Iowa was already. I mean, Tennessee. They were they were both in some yeah. significant. Trouble. Well, that's something to watch too. Is what happens to the other companies that do comply with the Obamacare markets? I think they're not super pleased with the idea that they might have to compete against these skimpier health plans. It was already in a pretty precarious situation. You have one carrier pull out, and that could be pretty bad for the Iowa market. 
All right, so we're going to have to look at all the states that start with I. Um, but the next one, the next one up is Utah. More more vowels. Utah is one of 19 states that has not expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Now it wants to expand it, but not to everyone. Utah wants to expand uh, eligibility to people who earn up to 100 percent of poverty. That's roughly twelve thousand dollars a year for an individual, rather than the 138 percent of poverty that's uh, that's uh, in the Affordable Care Act. That's just over sixteen thousand dollars a year. Previous attempts to do this, to do this sort of partial expansion, have been rejected by federal officials. Do we think that's going to change with this one? Well, the Obama administration certainly would would not allow states to do the partial expansion. It was 138 percent, or uh, in order to qualify for getting all the federal money. And but we're obviously in a whole different. <laughs> era right now. And so, yeah, it remains to be seen. I mean, Utah has been talking about this back and forth. I mean, since like 2013. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, you know, the the, the will they or won't they has been going on. Um, Well, and I find it interesting. I mean, my understanding, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the administration now, the Trump administration was looking at an Arkansas request to do this. But they already had expanded to the 138 level. And so they haven't. And they have this weird hybrid where yeah. people can can stay on their private plan. So, well, and they and and they haven't approved that the waiver. And I don't know if that tells us anything about Utah, though, because Utah doesn't have an expansion of Medicaid at all. So, it, this could be adding people to the rolls instead of taking it off. So, I'm you know, it'll be interesting to see what what the administration does. Although, obviously, that's many months out. I think they still have to submit the waiver in the first place. But it seems like something they're going to have to deal with now that we have Arkansas, Utah. I'm guessing we'll probably see some other more conservative states that haven't expanded Medicaid make the same request. So it seems like an issue at some point they're going to have to decide on. And it's hard for me to game out. Like I know, like Alice was saying, exactly where the Obama administration would land. I don't know where the Trump administration lands on this one. But I could see them treating it like work requirements where they're more amenable Mm -hmm. to approving an expansion with work requirements rather than no expansion at all. Yeah, and, and it would. I mean, I don't think there's any question that if they approved it, we would probably see other states come in fairly quickly to to do the same thing. I know this is sort of there's a there's a lot of, you know, states that haven't expanded are well, states, some of the states that have expanded are clearly looking now at work requirements. But this has been sort of an issue at 100 percent. You can buy into the exchanges. And I think that's the argument um, that the feeling was when they passed the ACA that that even if you're able to buy into the exchanges between 100 and 138 percent, you still didn't have enough sort of income to to be able to afford your cost sharing, even with the cost sharing help. So they wanted to to extend that a little bit further. But at least this would um, would would make it so people would be able to do one or the other if they expanded up to 100 percent. But it could also trigger a sort of race to the bottom because if 100 percent is OK, why not 90 percent? Why not? 80%? You know, <laughs> we could just see states seeing how low the administration's willing to go. Well, a lot of the states right now that haven't expanded have, you know, have uh, uh, sort of eligibility levels. And obviously, no, if you're they're only for parents because no other non-disabled adults are eligible. But even for parents, some of them are, you know, 15, 20, 30 percent of poverty. I remember after Hurricane Katrina, I was on a conference call and we were talking to the Medicaid director of Louisiana. And she was saying that, you know, for parents, the Medicaid threshold is 15 percent of poverty. And somebody said 15. She said, no, 15, one, five. So it's I mean, you got to be really, really, really poor. Of yeah. The population. Yeah. So. 
All right. Well, that uh, another thing that we will watch as it go. Um, I want to come back to Capitol Hill for a minute. Uh, the bipartisan effort to stabilize the Affordable Care Act is dead, at least for now. But Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren has introduced her own ACA fix-it legislation. Now, I generally don't pay much attention to bill introductions, but this one's interesting because she's considered, along with Vermont's Bernie Sanders, among the chamber's most liberal members, and she's been a backer of his single-payer bill. It seems that her Consumer Health Insurance Protection Act would do a lot of things that many more moderate Democrats have been suggesting, including boosting subsidies to middle-income people, requiring insurance companies that offer private and, as we've just mentioned, lucrative uh, uh, managed care plans in Medicare and Medicaid to also offer coverage in the less lucrative individual marketplace. But my real question is about the politics of this. Is there some sort of schism coming in the Democratic Party, or will they, assuming they get control of Congress and the White House back at some point, be able to agree on something health-related? <laughs> I feel like, um, I, 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 so I don't see a schism quite yet. I think it's notable that you have a lot of more liberal Democrats endorsing a lot of different health care plans right now. You know, that you have Elizabeth Warren. She's a co-sponsor of the Bernie Sanders Medicare for All bill, but she also has this, um, you know, proposal that they seem like two different bills for two different eras. You know, this one is one where the ACA still exists, but it's struggling to attract competition. Let's see how we can boost it. And then I kind of see the Sanders bill is like the bill for, you know, we have our supermajority in the Senate. We have a Democrat president. Like, let's go forward with the system that we actually want. Although I think you're right. Like, if we do get to that scenario, would we see like a Warren bill versus a Sanders bill? And there's other ideas out there, too. You know, we've talked about the Center for American Progress proposal. Their that Medicare kind of, for more. Their Medicare for more, which kind of like I see between these two different options. So I think there's a spectrum developing. But I kind of see the Warren one as um, a bill for this particular moment to say, OK, Republicans, like if this is a problem, here's one solution that we have to fix it. And it is interesting that as there has been so much emphasis in the Democratic Party on defense this entire uh, past year with, you know, preventing the full repeal of the Affordable Care Act and trying to limit the damage. And they, you know, they weren't able to prevent the individual mandate from going away. But it's it's all been defense. And I think the introduction of these bills is a recognition that eventually they're going to have to say not just what they're against, but what they're for when it comes to health care. And so it's sort of gearing up for that and getting getting the policy in order and doing the research now so that one day when they have any chance of passing anything, they they have some debates ready to go. What if we end up with divided government next year with the, the Democrats in control of at least one House of Congress and President Trump still? Is that is that is is this maybe you know, setting up for that. I mean, not that they would likely be able to pass this anyway. Well, it's but. also something, I mean, introducing the bill, bills now give give Democrats something to campaign on, saying, you know, is, this is our plan. This is what we would do if in power. Do you want to put us in power? Is this what you want? And I think, too, they're, they're sort of testing out these different things where they don't know, you know, and obviously their entire base is not behind single payer. Um, and so they, they need to figure out kind of what's going to, to play the best. So you might as well have Elizabeth Warren and, and many of the other sponsors who want to run for president in 2020 who are on both of these bills. She you know, swears she's not. But. <laughs> they all 
they all do. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you know, they're, none of them are making that decision yet. Um, I mean, we've seen them supporting both sides of it. So maybe learning a little lessons from the last time around you know, when I think single-payer advocates definitely felt a little more pushed aside um, during the Obamacare debate. There really wasn't ever going to be that that possibility. And they so, were they were pushed aside in the Clinton care debate too. They've been around for a really long time. <laughs> but the so Senate, maybe this time we'll the be makeup different. of the Senate is really different than it was then. That's on, on the Democratic the, side. Uh, yeah, on the yeah. Democratic side, yes, and a lot of the true. most conservative Democrats are gone. Yes, they've been replaced <laughs> by Republicans, <laughs> which is which is true in the House too. I yeah, mean, there yeah. are all these conservative Democrats who aren't there anymore because that's why Republicans have such a big majority. I mean, those mm-hmm. are the swing seats. That, and the Democrats who are left uh, who are left are. Left. <laughs> yes. The Democrats who are left are left. <laughs> All right. Well, our last piece of news this week. Um, Aetna, the insurance company, has joined United Healthcare in vowing to pass along drug discounts that they get from their middlemen to patients. Um, that all sounds good, except that while it will help the individual patients who take expensive drugs, it might actually end up raising premiums for everyone else. So is this a good thing or not, Anna? You, you like to look at the drug industry. I do. Um, so I think it's, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I think it might give us a little insight, and this will be way down the road. But um, the the idea with this is that the drug makers have been being, you know, they've been hounded me as they've been raising the prices really high. And they've been saying, no, 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 it's the insurance companies, it's these middlemen, the pharmacy benefit managers, they're keeping these discounts we give them um, and not passing them on to the patients. So essentially, you know, Aetna's CEO said, okay, we're doing that, you know, we were doing that for for some anyway, but we're gonna we're going to do that for um, a, a more people in our plans. And then, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna say when the drug prices keep going up? Like we're doing our share. So I think it it, it might be a little insightful. But it, this, as you mentioned, premiums probably are going to go up. I don't know how much how much of that is sort of baked into this. Um, but it's a it's a tactic that insurers say they do to keep premiums low um, for lower for everyone. Um, but it does hit people who have high co-pays or deductibles really hard because then they're paying the full cost of a medicine that no one else is paying full cost for. It, it sort of adds to the the fact that this whole debate about transparency and, and pricing and things like that, it's just really tough. And you squeeze one end and the other end is going to, like all of healthcare, it's going to blow up. And so um, I'm not sure in the end, how helpful this is going to be for bringing down patient costs across the board. It seems to speak to a lot of the polling that we see on healthcare, where if you look at Kaiser Family Foundation polling, you know, again and again, you see the cost of prescription drugs as the thing that is bothering people the most, the thing that, and, you know, I think one of the things that happens here that happens in a lot of policy areas is you have a smaller but very vocal majority that's experiencing, you know, to be fair, like a very difficult financial situation. Some of these drugs we're talking about, you know, are as much as someone might earn in an entire year. Or way more than they might earn in an entire year. Um, And then, you know, you know, I, I guess I'm skeptical that, you know, these discounts will go away and insurance companies would just eat that loss. But you'll see the premium increase spread out against such a larger group of people. So, you know, maybe if premiums go up a few bucks for everybody, the cost gets spread out. Um, which is what and, insurance is for, after Which is all. what insurance is for. So, you know, it, it's – but it seems to me to really respond to, you know, a lot of the polling data and just a lot of, like, you know, the stories I write about medical bills is that – 
there is a really significant frustration with the price of, um, of pharmaceuticals in the United States. Yes, I think that is good. Well, that, that is a great segue to our next segment. Um, we have a new feature this week. It's based on a project KHN is doing with our partners at NPR, and it's called Bill of the Month. Each month, we're going to dissect someone's actual medical bill and see why medical care costs so much and what people might actually be able to do to lower those bills. If you have a medical bill you'd like to offer up for the project, we will post the link about how to do that on the podcast page at khn.org. So here is the segment. Joining us today is KHN correspondent Shafali Luthra. She did the March Bill of the Month about a prescription for a foot fungus cream that was a lot more expensive than you would expect. Welcome, Shafali. Hi, Julie. So first, tell us a little bit about the patient and how she came to get this particular prescription. Sure. So this is Anne Solaviv. She's a 77-year-old woman, lives in Capitol Hill. Here in Washington. Yes. Uh, she's retired, but like, still works part-time teaching French. She's this really great, interesting, fun woman to talk to. And she is at heightened risk for skin cancer. So she went to the dermatologist. She goes regularly enough. And it was a general checkup. And they said, hey, you have this this fungus on your foot. Um, let's give you some some cream. Take it on your toes. It's an 11, 11 fill prescription. You'll be good. And she said, sure. She thought nothing of it. They... So it would have to be filled 11 times? Yes. So, okay. So, so so a prescription and 10 refills. Yes. And they told her they'd call it in to this specialty pharmacy that would mail it to her house and she'd be all set. She said, okay. She went home. The first prescription came. She applied it. Didn't really see much change, but figured it's a long haul type deal. Then the next prescription came in the mail and she didn't realize that she had allowed them to do an automatic refill. She kept at it, and then a few days later went to get a different medication from the pharmacy, went to CVS to get her statin, and she has an HRA, a health reimbursement, reimbursement account. account, yes, and in her insurance, and... It's it's kind of like a fancy yeah. FSA. The nice thing about it is that the, the plan puts the money in for her. She hadn't put any money, and it had about $1,500 in it. It was empty, and she asked what happened. Did the money not get put in this year? It's January, and they said no, this money has all gone toward paying for your foot fungus cream. And turns out it's a $1,500 for one prescription of that cream. And there we go. That's what happened to Anne. <laughs> and and so what did she do after she found out? She was horrified. Um, She canceled the prescription going forward. And she actually told the pharmacist, she called them, they couldn't explain what happened. And she said, I'm going to call NPR and Kaiser Health News and see if they can figure it out. And so it was like a veritable odyssey to figure out what happened. Her bill was one of the most confusing things I've read. And like, I showed it to several experts who do this for a living. They interpret medical bills and also said, dear God, this takes at least 20 minutes to understand what happened here. And turns out the way it worked was she had gotten billed for this drug at full cost. Her $2,000 deductible hadn't yet kicked in. So her HRI was emptied automatically. As soon as it was emptied, a coupon was applied from the drug maker so that she wouldn't have any cost sharing. So she never got any bills for it. And going forward, it would probably be covered. She'd have no more than a $60 copay for the drug. But at this point, she doesn't really care. She doesn't want to get any more of this. She feels kind of cheated and is ready to move on. And do we know why this particular drug costs so much? So this is interesting. Um, Keratin is the name of the foot fungus cream. And it only has one other competitor, really, that's a similar topical application that's called Jublia. They're both priced pretty competitively. And I mean, it's a patented drug. Competitively with each other. Exactly. Um, there's no generic. There's no reason for it to cost any less. And 
one thing I was thinking about this morning, actually, when I was, you know, thinking about the story again was patients also often just don't know how much these drugs cost, especially when you have a coupon applied, right? Like they're not seeing the cost sharing. And I mean, that's why it took so long for EpiPen to ever get found out, right? That's right. I mean, that, that it's it's amazing that you know that these things sort of happen, and you if you have insurance, this is what people complain about with mm-hmm. insurance: is that insurance takes away your knowledge of the price of things until you actually discover the price of things, and and then maybe you're fifteen hundred dollars out. So, was there anything she could have done differently, other than I guess ask at the very beginning how much is this prescription going to cost, which most doctors don't know anyway. Honestly, probably not. I mean. The real takeaway here is, like, it's really uncomfortable to ask. The doctors often don't know, but you need to, I guess, find that on your own because there's no one else out there who's going to advocate for you on this. No one else has an incentive to. So what happens to to this lovely lady? She just has no more money for the rest of the year for her drugs, right? Yep. And she's in pretty good health. So she is hoping that, you know, she'll be fine going forward. Um, Her insurance, her deductible has been met. So any other things she won't have to pay full price out of pocket, she'll be paying a copay. Let's, let's assume that that's not going to exhaust her her resources, but just it's an unfortunate thing that can't really be fixed. And kind of a painful, painful way to learn how expensive some things are. Yeah, I can think of more fun ways to learn this. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Shafali. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with another Bill of the Month next month. Okay, we're going to wrap things up with everyone's extra credits. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry, we will post the links to all of these pieces on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first this week, Anna? Um, as Trump targets immigrants, elderly, braced to lose caregivers, this was a Kaiser Health News story by Melissa Bailey. It focuses on a, a segment of the healthcare industry um, that might be ex- you know, extremely affected by some of the um, immigration policies, mainly that you know Trump wants is uh, taking away the temporary status um, for immigrants from Haiti, um, many who fled after the earthquake. And this um, looks at home health workers and you know, how a lot of them are the immigrants from Haiti. And so they're already short on you know workers. And so this could, kicking them out of the country could basically cause a huge hole and be really rough for um, these elderly people who rely on them. It's quite a story. Uh, Alice. Jumping off of our discussion about Utah and other states, uh, there was a very interesting report from Brookings this week um, by Mark Hall that was examining basically the talking point from conservative advocacy groups that have campaigned really hard to uh, block Medicaid expansion in many states and basically picking apart their arguments that the states that have expanded Medicaid have seen runaway costs and a huge burden on the state government. And it was showing that that's a lot of misinformation. And the data actually shows that uh, the costs have been very modest. There has not been a significant increase in state spending in Medicaid expansion states. And many states actually saw a decrease in spending of taxpayer dollars due to expansion. And so... Because people who are getting free care now mm-hmm. have insurance. Exactly. Exactly. And so I uh, I think it's, yeah, very important to look at as Utah and other states continue this debate. Sarah. Um, So I wanted to share a story called The Tale of Theranos and the Mysterious Fire Alarm um, that ran on both Kaiser Health News and Vox.com. It's by Jenny Gold, 
who shares, um, you know, as we've been watching this kind of implosion of Theranos that keeps getting bigger and bigger. Theranos she, is the 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 the, 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 uh, the blood testing company that was going to revolutionize yes. blood testing until it wasn't. And this, um, you know, it was a story, you know, that actually happened back in November 2014 that, you know, the reporter Jenny Gold saw in a very different light now that we've been seeing charges brought against the founders of Theranos and all this kind of crazy implosion where she writes about this crazy reporting story um, where Theranos had said she could go to a Walgreens in California and watch patients get tested with this new revolutionary test. Nobody's getting the test. She's asking why nobody's getting the test. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a fire alarm goes off so she can no longer interview people. As she writes um, in the piece, I'd never been in a drugstore where the fire alarm went off. There was no smoke and no fire. Um, I've also never been in a drugstore where a fire alarm has gone off. So I thought this was just a really kind of interesting, colorful story about what it was like for journalists to interact with Theranos um, and kind of an early canary in the coal mine. Yeah, of, um, in retrospect, so, it reads with a whole different, yes. the whole story reads yes. much differently. All right, well, mine is from Bloomberg News. It's called Why Some Americans Are Risking It and Skipping Health Insurance. And it's a new crowdsourced project about those families who buy their own insurance but earn just too much, a little bit too much to get help from the government. They're currently following, this Bloomberg is currently following a dozen families around the country who've decided they simply can't afford it anymore. And they're either going bare or they're buying coverage that they know won't really protect them if something really bad happens. Um, They're also soliciting stories from folks who don't have insurance. So we now have three crowdsourced stories today. We'll post the links in all of them. If you don't have insurance, you can contact Bloomberg. If you have a bill of the month, you can contact us and, and NPR. And Sarah, you are still soliciting emergency room bills, right? Yes, erbills.vox.com. So we will we will post the links to all of those. Um, so p- participatory democracy here in journalism. So that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sarah Cliff. At Alice Olstein. At Anna Edney. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.